Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Islam for Christians, episode 74, Quran, Surah 98, Al-Bayna, The Clear Proof. Those who disbelieve among the people of the scripture and the idolaters could not have stopped erring until the clear proof came unto them. A messenger from Allah, reading purified pages, containing correct scriptures. Nor were the people of the scripture divided until after the clear proof came unto them. And they are ordered not else than to serve Allah, keeping religion pure for him, as men by nature upright, and to establish worship and to pay the poor due. That is true religion. Lo, those who disbelieve among the people of the scripture and among the idolaters will abide in the fire of hell. They are the worst of created beings. And lo, those who believe and do good works are the best of created beings. Their reward is with their Lord, gardens of Eden underneath which rivers flow, wherein they will dwell forever. Allah hath pleasure in them, and they have pleasure in him. This is in store for him who feareth his Lord. And now the Arabic as recited by Saad El-Gamdi. فيها كتب قيمة وما تفرق الذين أوتوا الكتاب إلا من بعد ما جاءتهم البينة وما أمروا إلا ليعبدوا الله مخلصين له الدين حنفاء ويقيموا الصلاة حنفاء For me, and I imagine for much of this audience, line six of this surah really, really stands out. Lo, those who disbelieve among the people of the scripture and the idolaters will abide in fire of hell. They are the worst of created beings. So the people of the scripture. Now, for those unfamiliar with the Quran, that basically means Jews and Christians. So you should hear pretty much this. 
Lo, those who disbelieve among the Jews and the Christians and the idolaters, meaning pagans, uh, the Quran isn't actually calling Jews and Christians idolaters. It's a separate thing. They will abide in fire of hell. They are the worst of created beings. So that line, before we barrel right into it, um, let's actually start with something a bit more fundamental before we get there. This is going to be a very long preamble, so please stick with me here. It will all seem relevant to this story in the end, I promise. So let's start with a very basic question. What makes a prophet believable? What makes for an indisputable prophet? And at what point are people blameworthy for disbelieving the divine messenger? Let me tell you straight up, this is my personal bias. I have a natural empathy for the skeptics, for those who didn't quite understand right away, like Thomas and even the Pharisees. Now, true, the Pharisees misunderstood the situation, grievously so, but it wasn't always because of arrogance and hypocrisy and using God as a social ladder and a legal weapon. I mean, it was for some, you know, those are the people Jesus railed against, but that's not the person I'm talking about here. I'm thinking about the priest who was genuinely afraid that Jesus was going to bring God's wrath upon his nation yet again, or the ordinary Jew who wasn't sure whether he could trust his feelings about this Jesus character or the people, you know, who were the traditional authorities who were telling him something else. You know, the, the person who thought the Pharisees and Jesus both made good points, but was really unable to make that final leap. So, when Muhammad started his ministry, I understand why people were skeptical. For one thing, he was a normal person for 40 years. He wasn't some mystery man from the north who just came to Jerusalem and turned the place upside down. He was a mild-mannered, middle-aged resident of Mecca. He didn't perform miracles. He came with a message. And when this surah was revealed about halfway through his ministry, I think he was getting very frustrated by this. But I also have to frustrated by the fact that he just wasn't getting as so much traction, as much belief as he was hoping. But I also have to believe that an introspective guy like Muhammad would have at least understood why people were skeptical, especially the Jews and the Christians, whose main attitude was likely, listen, Muhammad, you know, you seem like a nice enough guy, but if we're going to overthrow our ancient religions here, you know, or even put you into them and say you were a fulfillment of something in these ancient religions, you're just going to have to do better than a collection of poetic sermons. And even Muslims should be able to recognize that and to understand that, just as Christians can recognize that the Jews were understandably gun-shy about someone upending the traditional interpretation of Jewish law. They had to be careful lest they end up in Babylon again. Of course, they sort of did anyway, but that's a different story. So, given this, I think, understandable skepticism, it seems strange that so many religions always portray, portray the non-converts in such a harsh manner. 
you know, for the purposes of this surah, it's those who were skeptical of Muhammad. There's this odd habit of asserting with such zeal and certainty that all skeptics are evil people, that someone, due to a reasonable mistake, an honest mistake, would spend forever in hell for something that really doesn't seem all that evil. You know, honest ignorance is not evil, and it seems a bit out of balance. You know, like on earth, having someone tortured and killed for jaywalking or a parking ticket. This is a theme throughout Christian and Muslim history. And I'll talk about this while I'm commenting on the surah. It really doesn't have to be that way. This surah is not entirely as it seems. And it makes a bit more sense if you step back and think about it a bit differently. Okay. So here's the sort of dominant meta-narrative that many people have used to interpret this surah, and others like it down the, down the line. And, and Christians do this too. When thinking of Christianity and Islam, or in terms of Christianity and Islam, often God is portrayed as this completely unreasonable, uncaring, and unsympathetic character who is trying to damn people on technicalities and honest mistakes. Honest mistakes from creatures who are, to be honest, barely sentient compared to God, and lacking pretty much any intelligence compared to God Almighty. Now, I don't want to use the word fundamentalist here, because that word has been so used and abused that it has lost all meaning, at least where I'm from. And the fundamentals are important, but there is a certain mental conception, this certain headspace people seem to get in. And in my country, this mainly comes from people who hand out religious flyers. And they're good-hearted people, don't get me wrong. I never received a religious flyer that I did not read with great interest. I love that kind of thing. But there is this sort of rigid, very legalistic aspect to the afterlife a great certainty of the unknown and unknowable that just seems inconsistent with the Son of God who spoke in many varied parables in an attempt to explain the unexplainable. Now, why? Because this stuff really transcends language and conventional human understanding. Now, I should clarify that I'm not talking about certainty of faith in Jesus Christ here. <laughs> you know, that's a good thing. That makes perfect sense. So does certainty in the teachings of the church or of the Bible, depending on your preference, or in the general concepts of heaven and hell and purgatory, whatever that may mean to you. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean more of the nuts and bolts, the process. I mean certainty in the step-by-step, -step, the dry, the Robert's rules of order that St. Peter is allegedly keeping up in heaven, and based on any one of a zillion theological interpretations of Bible passages. Thinking in terms of technicalities rather than the broader definition of heaven and hell, that heaven means being with God and hell means being without God, you know, and meditating on what that means, um, that's what I'm talking about. So this sort of engineer's theory of religion, this legalistic framework, it gives many people certainty and comfort and 
actually, sometimes it really does bear good fruit. Sometimes. So I'm not going to criticize it too harshly, but this kind of thing just seems off theme. It's uncharacteristic given the source material, in this case, the New Testament. You know, as if the material was read but not quite understood. A level of understanding that could pass a multiple choice test, but couldn't write more than a few sentences in the essay portion on the 10 blank pages at the end of the test booklet. You know, like a person who read a poem and can recite the poem, but does not really feel the poem. I say poem weird, don't I? That sounds weird when I say it out loud. Anyway, and in this particular version of the meta world, God is kind of like the bridge keeper from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where he asks you a few questions, and if you give him the wrong color, or you know, you never learn the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow, you are cast into the gorge of eternal peril. You know, this idea that there's the right answer and there's the wrong answer, and your intentions and your heart and your circumstances, they don't matter. It's right or wrong. Cross the bridge or go to hell. And this Sora, this is an opportunity for people to bring out that concept, that old dichotomy. And you see this from both Christians and Muslims. This is not just a Christian thing. And this Sora brings out the Muslim version of that. This idea that the Quran is clearly the word of God. And Muhammad's so clearly a prophet that anyone who thinks otherwise is clearly wicked and deserves to go to hell. And when this comes up, there is an uncomfortable truth both religions have to accept. It's just not as clear as you think. Both Islam and Christianity make compelling cases. They make sound religious arguments. And, you know, that convincingly conclude that everyone, except for them, is going to hell. And again, both religions make pretty strong cases for this. They just do. So what is someone supposed to do with that? They both have great arguments, at least I think so. Now, and I'm someone who knows these religions pretty well. I'm a pretty thoughtful guy, and I think both have solid logical arguments for why they are right. So what does a person like me do? And I'm talking about the legalistic um, idea that we go to heaven and they don't. You know, it's that mindset here, not the broader religious concepts I'm talking about, to clarify that a million times. Now, both have solid reasoning, but there's also a logical problem here, because logically, both cannot be right. If one is right, the other is wrong, and vice versa. There is no logical world where both of these arguments, and again, I'm talking about the exclusive salvation arguments here for the millionth clarification. In that realm, there is no logical place where both can be right. However, <laughs> there is a logical way for both of them to be wrong. And that's a distinct possibility here. Perhaps, you know, both of the exclusivist fundamentalist, I wish I had a better word, but fundamentalist interpretations of this kind of thing, perhaps both are wrong. And in admitting this possibility, 
you also have to make sure that you're understanding we're talking about religion here. These are not blueprints of a building. This is not architecture. This is not engineering. This is not mathematics. You know, here we are far out of the realm of logic and syllogisms, way out of the rational enlightenment world right now, you know, for being honest about it. The truth is, I am a Christian because of what I feel. All the rest is just backfilling a top-down scaffolding that supports a belief that would be there regardless. You start on the roof, construct the scaffolding on your way down. That's just how humans work when they think about these things. The completed product doesn't look that way. It kind of looks like, oh, you started at the bottom and you went up. But honest people know that is not how it's built. And then some people, you know, they pretend they climb that scaffolding to get to the top. But again, really, you started at the top. <laughs> and the scaffolding is there merely to keep you there as securely as possible. That's just humanity. That's human thought. That's how people work, regardless of religion, regardless of no religion. This is true in very, very many realms of um, religious life, political life, whatever. So let me tell you my irrational position here, the thing I feel, and then backfill with selective logic. I tend to be a big picture person. The long arc, the long story. You know, it's why I prefer history and religion to current events. Not that current events are not interesting, but Really, when you pan out and look at it through a larger lens, the events of the day are rarely significant. So, in the big picture, think about the God that you feel in yourself and when you pray, the, the God that you communicate with. You know, the God who, for Christians, loved humans so much he wanted to join us. That most radical, scandalous of ideas that makes Christianity so unique. Then mix in the God of the Old Testament, of the New Testament, of the Quran. And I mean, not a single passage of the Quran, but the Quran as a whole. Throw all that together and let it swish around in your mind for a while. Are you really going to believe that God would set up a situation where two similar religions make compelling cases, and that if someone chooses the wrong one, that person goes to hell for an honest mistake. I mean, really? Does that sound like God? Is that consistent with the character of God? I mean, really? Really? So we have a situation where if you don't believe Jesus is the son of God, you will go to hell right alongside another situation where if you do think that Jesus is the son of God, you will go to hell. Decisions, decisions. What's a religious person supposed to do? It's a coin flip with your afterlife at stake. Again, really? Does that make sense? Does that sound like God? For example, let's just assume that the fundamentalist Muslims have been right all along. So as a Christian, I die. And for a very brief moment, I see God. And God looks at me and he chuckles and he says, ah, gotcha. 
you were wrong. Go to hell. Go directly to hell. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. And then the floor falls out and I crash into hell. All like it was some kind of cosmic game show for God's amusement. I mean, really? Is that consistent with anything you have read in the Bible or the Quran? Again, not an isolated passage, but the texts as a whole. Is that consistent with the character of God portrayed in the great religions? And because it's so out of character, you know, in that case, shouldn't there be some very, very clear proof of this? A clear proof so obvious that even the thickest of lunkheads should be able to recognize it? But really, in our world, that does not exist. You know, and in a way, from a certain point of view, from a certain fundamentalist perspective, you know, that is the case being made in this Sura, that here is a clear proof so obvious that even the thickest of lunkheads should be able to recognize it. Um, but again, that, that doesn't exist. That has never existed in your world, unless maybe you're right there and you see God performing this miracle, you know, otherwise, again, it does seem if you read this Sora from that perspective, it's coming from that cosmic game show perspective, you know, of God just almost having fun with this kind of thing. This Sora talks about clear proof. Now, there are pious Muslims who would say, the Quran is right. It is a clear proof. It's Muhammad's miracle. And it's superior to the Bible, because unlike the Bible, the Quran comes from a single holy source. Whereas the less trustworthy Bible was written by many people. And that's the setup for this Sura, the first three lines. Those who disbelieve among the people of the scripture and the idolaters could not have stopped erring till the clear proof came unto them. A messenger from Allah, reading purified pages, containing correct scriptures. So this is a holy manual, pure, unlike the corrupted scriptures from before. A pure, single religion. Unlike those quarreling Christians and their sects, one message, one messenger, one pure authoritative voice. Of course, this will clarify everything, right? Did it? I mean, obviously, not everyone saw it that way. This Sora is either late Meccan or early Medinan. So, right around the time that Muhammad started to experience some rejection, you know. But not just the predictable pagan rejection. It was rejection from people he actually respected, the Jews and the Christians, the Jews in particular. But really, let's be realistic here. If these people were going to discard their old, old religion or their old scriptures, they would need a compelling reason, a very compelling reason, a miraculously compelling reason. And this Sora claims to offer that clear proof, that reason. But really, you can see why people would still be skeptical. The Quran is saying, here, look, it's all here in this pure message. One God, 
one message, one messenger, direct from God, pure as the snow you people have never seen. And how do you know this is all a single-sourced, pure communication? Well, because the Quran says so, and Muhammad says so. Again, that's fine for people who are already Muslims, but that's clearly a leap of faith. It just is. And a huge one for people who already have a pretty solid, ancient, monotheistic religion dedicated to the one God, the same God that's in this Quran. So the source of the Quran is saying that the Quran is pure. Now, this is obviously a logical problem. It works at a religious level, but it's a closed loop in the rational mind. You know, it's only acceptable, accessible, I should say. You know, this mode of reasoning only will work if someone is already inside this mode of reasoning. It's like a salesman telling you, this is the greatest product in the world. How do you know? Because the salesman said so. Oh, and it says so right on the label here. It says, oh, greatest product in the world, right? Now, who could argue with that? When this surah was revealed, it was probably around the early 620s, maybe after the Hijra. But in terms of converts, this was still very early in the game. Muhammad had maybe a few hundred followers. That wouldn't be enough to make most people leave a quality religion. I mean, pagans, sure, but Jews and Christians, that's a much harder lift. The movement has to snowball before people start to give it a second look. You know, there was no such thing as a Christian, really, in Jesus' time. I mean, there were, but I mean, it wasn't, you know, it, it was the faithfulness of the disciples later on who literally gave their lives for Jesus that made people take notice. And then Paul and the growth of the church and so on. And I suppose the Muslim version of that would have happened after Muhammad in the expansion of the empire. Or before that, if you were an Arab, and that he did unite the entire Arabic peninsula. You know, once people saw this in Muslim army marching on Mecca and taking it, that was probably the moment they were like, whoa, this is something I need to be taking seriously and to give a second look. But even that, that happened long after this sir was revealed. And anyway, the, the surface reading of this, this surah, is that Muhammad was frustrated, right? And so this line pops up. Lo, those who disbelieve among the people of the scripture and the idolaters will abide in fire of hell. They are the worst of created beings. And so from a certain lens, it looks like, oh, those who don't believe Muhammad are going to hell. Not only that, but they are the worst of all creature, creatures. You know, it, it seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? Perhaps unreasonable under the circumstances. But really, I don't think that's actually what it's saying. It does if you're into the flip a coin, go to hell cosmic game show that I described earlier. But that is missing something crucial. Here's how commentator Muhammad Assad translates that first part about those who disbelieve. He says this says, Those who, despite all evidence, 
are bent on denying the truth. So instead of those who disbelieve, he says, I should probably break that up. Muhammad Assad, the, the line that Muhammad Assad says here, he translates this as, those who, despite all evidence, are bent on denying the truth. Notice what word he's not saying there. He's not saying instead of saying those who disbelieve. He's saying those who, despite all evidence, are bent on denying the truth. These are the worst of the created beings. These are the people going to hell. And of course, this is an important distinction, a very important distinction here. This is talking about someone who reads the Quran, decides it is true, and then rejects it anyway. Why? Because they want to do evil deeds, or because of pride, or because of some other wicked reason. These are the worst of creatures. And regardless of one's religion, I would agree. But I'd also add another adjective. Stupid. <laughs> Someone who does that is just stupid. If someone knows the truth, and that truth includes an all-powerful being that can make you burden hell for eternity, and you know this, and yet you still do your own thing, well, that's almost as much stupidity as it is evil. Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's doubly evil. You know, kind of a natural evil. Naughty by nature. So here's another pop culture reference, uh, perhaps inappropriate and dated like naughty by nature, but I think it works to demonstrate this mindset that I think the Quran is talking about, you know, someone who, who knows and yet rejects it anyway. It's from the TV show, The Sopranos, uh, a bit older, not, not that old, but one of the great, usually considered one of the greater shows of all time. Now, this character of Christopher, he's Tony's nephew, he would talk about this kind of thing often, and he would actually say, hey there, that's Tony. That's the man I'm going to hell for. So he knows. He understands this. He's almost made a bargain with himself. He is evil, and he is going to hell. He knows he should stop. He knows the weak rationalizations for this wicked life he's leading that they're wrong and yet he's doing it anyway the funny part is these guys pretend to be catholics at the same time they're doing all this they are baptized confirmed and they revere the church they send their kids to catholic schools they are upset when their sons question the existence of god and yet are they believers do they really have faith? Now, in Islamic terms, the answer almost surely would be no, even if they profess to be Muslims. So people like Christopher, they are the believers who disbelieve, the worst of created beings. Now, often, as is the case, when you're talking about faith, in the Quran, the Arabic word that's relevant here is deen. Now, I may have talked about this before, but you should probably know what deen means because it's so important because it's used so often. Deen 
is obedience to something with moral authority. It doesn't necessarily have to be religious, but it usually is. And it's often translated as religion or faith or moral law. And these things always kind of get mixed up, these different translations. And the translation of things like disbeliever, they don't always mean what the English reader thinks that they mean. So something with a broad meaning will often become narrowed based on that person's point of view and based on the word used in English. In the case of disbeliever, it's best to think of this word, well, as Muhammad used it, you know, meaning someone who has no deen, so, you know, someone who has no true faith and acts like someone who has no true faith. You know, the same people Jesus was railing against. These are not people who don't believe in a certain God or a certain creed. I mean, they, they, it can be used that way. But more broadly, it's people who act against the nature of God and what God would consider to be righteous conduct. And those can be religious figures like the Pharisees of Jesus's time who put on a religious exterior, but who were spiritually dead inside. You know, they said they believed, but they had no clue what God was about. They had religion. They had belief in God, but they had no dean. Dean is something deep inside. Jesus saw this in people who were looked down upon by Jerusalem's religious authorities. You know, like the Roman soldiers, the tax collectors, prostitutes. He saw more dean in them than in the people who claimed to represent Moses. So, when I hear the word disbeliever, that's where my mind goes. The opposite of someone who has dean. Someone who is living apart from God. An unrighteous person. And that's the broad usage being used in this Sora. I should point out that nowhere in this Sora do you see proper nouns like Muhammad or Islam or Quran. The terms used are always far broader than that. It's disbeliever, not person who disbelieves Muhammad or person who disbelieves Quran or, or whatever. And you see words like Hunafa in the middle of line five, which is the descriptor used for all of these other qualities of a righteous man. Prayerful, charitable, sincere in faith. Hunafa comes from the verb hanafa, which means basically to be oriented in the right direction. Forms of this verb can be used to talk about believers, you know, who are turned in the right direction in more ways than one, or pagans who are literally, as the term says, turned sideways. And from this, you get the term hanif, who is someone who is naturally oriented toward God someone who is facing the right direction, and someone who naturally does the things that good men do. Prayer, charity, humbling oneself before the true God, etc. Submitting to the will of God rather than to his own will, you know, or to the will of the world, or to the will of whatever is fashionable at the time. So in that context, 
while this story is often read as a very harsh condemnation of Christians, you know, for a Jew or a Christian to be among the worst creatures, that person would have to see these clear proofs, believe them, understand that you were wrong, and that these clear proofs are right, and then reject them anyway, and then continue to live a wicked life. In other words, they would not really be a Jew or a Christian. You know, they would be a disbeliever. In American legal terms, they would be acting with actual malice toward God and the truth. They would be someone who has the Jew label, but does not have the dean of a Jew, or a Christian who has a Christian label, but does not have the dean or the substance of an actual Christian. And yeah, that would be a bad person, a horrible person, the worst of all creatures. So here, the Quran tells you about the disbelievers who are the worst of creatures. And then it says, those who believe and do good works are the best of created beings. Now, again, this is very broad. It doesn't say Muslims. It doesn't say followers of Muhammad. It just says those who believe and do good works. People with deen, believers, people of faith, true faith. We're talking about the true principles of faith here, which are shared by Muslims and Christians, you know, such as uh, devotion to God, prayer and praise, and, and a desire to be near God, and, uh, and charity and, and good works in service of God's other creatures. That's what's being said here, because uh, Christians, too, have a sincere devotion to God. And contrary to the Muslim misperception, no, we, we do not worship three gods. We worship God alone. I'm not sure if Muhammad's people ever managed to grasp that exactly, but seriously, it should go without saying. Trinitarianism is monotheism. And I'm just not sure how many people down in Arabia truly understood that. You know, Christians worship God alone. Even those Christians who are accused of worshiping Mary, for example, they're not worshiping Mary. No one does that. If anyone was doing that in pre-Islamic Arabia, they were not Christians, or they may have simply misunderstood what the church was teaching. You know, Arabia was pretty far removed from Christian religious and intellectual centers. You know, so, you know, who, who knows what was floating around down there? And let's be honest here, the, the Trinity is more of a palatable concept in the Greco-Roman world. It's a conception that owes its existence to both Athens and Jerusalem in many ways, and it's a logical construction that would be extremely unlikely without Greek philosophical tools. And that kind of thing will get more traction in a place like Rome than, say, in a place like China. You know, so for those who only know Jerusalem and not Athens, this idea of Three in one can seem ridiculous or dishonest or both. From the Muslim perspective, trusting something like that with divine doctrine seems completely insane. And I get that. You know, Christians make the wildest truth claim in the history of humanity. It's it's a radical, mind-melting assertion. You know, but to us, it's just crazy enough to be true. But from the Muslim perspective, 
that's all probably a bit too chaotic. You know, better just to have God say everything through one book, through one messenger. But still, you know, Christians will be accused of believing things that they do not. And that's just as true in Muhammad's time as it is in ours. And you will see this theme throughout Christian Muslim history, with one side telling the other side what it believes. And that's why a small creek running through the two faiths can just expand into a river and even an ocean. You know, and it's the popular interpretation of sores like this. That's what makes it happen. And here I'm arguing against this popular interpretation of sores like this. You know, I'm saying this is not about Christian versus Muslim. Unless we forget by this point, <laughs> um, I actually never went over the last line of this surah, which ends with a spectacular promise, I would say, to all who trust in God. It says, their reward is with their Lord, gardens of Eden underneath which rivers flow, wherein they dwell forever. Allah hath pleasure in them, and they have pleasure in him. This is in store for him who feareth his Lord. Or, if you like, there's the Christian version of this same thing. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, what God has ready for those who love him. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.